Good morning and welcome to Rising. Today we have a show that you will be proud to say that you watched. <laughs> Won't necessarily remember where you were when you watched it, but you'll be glad you watched it at least. <laughs> I'm, I'm so you glad. You feel like you wasted your time. So glad we're back to the traditional <laughs> opening for the show. Well, Julia Manchester and Emily Jashinsky will discuss Senator Rand Paul's amendment with us that will, would oust Fauci from the NIAID. Bacha Ungar Sargon will weigh in on the media's handling of inflation reporting, specifically those rising prices at the pump. Plus, we'll bring you updates on Ukraine and the Julian Assange case later in the show. But before we get to all of that, China is announcing brand new, guess what, COVID restrictions as the country faces its worst outbreak yet. So far, China has ordered more than 51 million people into lockdown after 1,437 cases were reported across dozens of cities Monday and doubled to 3,507 cases on Tuesday. According to the AP, a fast-spreading variant known as the stealth Omicron. So far, China has recorded more than 10,000 cases in the first two weeks of this month. However, no new deaths have been reported. China's zero-tolerance policy has forced Beijing to shutter entire provinces, including non-essential businesses in Shenzhen and surrounding provinces that produced 23 percent of Chinese exports in 2021, according to the American Prospect. China's extreme COVID measures will add to global shortages and supply-driven inflation. So director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project and author Matt Stoller joins us now to discuss the impact this will have here at home. Matt, welcome back. Thanks for having me. And so when you heard that Shenzhen was going to be going into a lockdown, what was, what was the first thing you thought? And as you've looked at it more, what are the ripple effects going to be, not just here in the U.S., but in China and around the world? Yeah, well, China's zero COVID strategy is, you know, it's been obvious that it's not going to contain Omicron for probably like three or four months. And so the supply I've been worried about supply chains from China for years. And this is just one more example of the problem and what happens when you have one of these supply chain uh, crises, you know, their cities are are getting shut down, um, which sucks for them. But, you know, for us, it's going to result in higher prices, more shortages, you know, the standard things that we've been seeing, more inflation. Do you think they're ever going to give this up, this COVID zero strategy? I mean, the rest of the world seems to have just said, OK, we can't. There's no way to contain it. And now, you know, China is still going forward with this. Um, even other countries, I think even Australia and New Zealand, are they still doing COVID zero strategies? I think they've maybe, <laughs> maybe given up on this. Uh, what do you think, what do you think, Matt, is going to be the future for this with China? If you could guess. Yeah, they'll give up on it. I mean, you, Omicron is Omicron, right? You can't, you can't stop it. So they will give up on it. Uh, it's just a question of politically how much their effort they're going to put into maintaining this sort of the bureaucracy that they've set up. They really, you know, the Chinese government feels, I think that they they feel that the restrictions that they've put up to address Omicron or to address COVID are actually helpful for other state purposes. So they're not super inclined to pull this stuff down, especially because there's a there's a party Congress coming up where Xi Jinping will get, I guess, another term. So this is a big there's a big bureaucratic investment in zero COVID. But of course, it's you can't stop COVID. So they will give it up. It's just a question of how. And, and by other purposes, you mean like 
you know, cracking down on dissent or, or preventing political demonstration or keeping kind of the, the public in line, right? Which is, <laughs> which is uh, scary when you, when you consider all the restrictions we put up with here for so long and how, you know, thank, thank goodness it hasn't gone to that extreme, but could also be used for similar purposes here. Yeah, basically tracking a population and, and organizing them in whatever way that they see fit. And some of that is uh, some of that is things like, you know, criminals who are at large. And, and some of it is just restricting what we would consider legitimate lawful behavior. Um, you know, so, yeah, it's an authoritarian state. And I'm not trying to be like, oh, well, you know, everybody has their own way of governing. I'm just saying it's useful for a government that wants total control over a population. Yeah, I never trusted China's numbers. I never really believed them. You know, when they were like, oh, we only have this many cases. I didn't either. <laughs> yeah. But this actually makes me kind of believe that maybe their numbers were accurate. If they're still going forward with these extreme lockdowns when the rest of the world is starting to give up and saying, okay, we've done it, and China has vaccinated a huge portion of their population. Uh, so this, I mean, I don't know. Does this make you guys actually think maybe they're not lying? Maybe they're telling the truth? Yeah, I think that they're, we're, we're I mean, I had the same reaction, but over a couple of, you know, after a while, you're like, oh, yeah, it is kind of true that they've probably done it. Enough people go there and see it. And also, you know, one of the things they did is they made it COVID, getting COVID a huge social stigma. So, you know, that's that's a big part of it. The population or the people there kind of they basically buy the government. They let they support the government's actions in locking people down in very aggressive ways. Of course, if you're locked down and, you know, they're like, stay in this store for three days without food or water, you know, people are upset. But Broadly, you know, the, I think the, the population there really thinks COVID is something that is just absolutely, it's a social stigma. So they are supportive. And now I think that's, so you have that bureaucratic, the bureaucratic state is part of the incentive, but also the actual broad social stigma is part of the incentive. So undoing COVID zero is going to be tough for them. I think a lot of them know, a lot of the strategists in the government know they have to undo it, but it's, there's a lot of obstacles. But yeah, their numbers, you know, they were... I, I don't really believe their numbers, but like they, the the basic direct. Just like I don't believe our numbers, but like the basic direction was accurate. And what do they mean when they when they say lockdown? Because lockdown means probably a little bit less here in the U.S. than lockdown means over there. Like if if what what do you mean by being in a store? Is that hyperbole? Or might somebody, if they're stuck in a place when there's a lockdown, like genuinely be stuck in a place? Yeah, they're there. That's that's what I mean. I mean, in Wuhan, it was like they were welding people into apartments. Right. Like they were just I do remember know, that. Yeah. Can't, like um, and I think that that's you know, that that's what's happening. Um, that could happen in in China. I mean, it's a you, you don't know because there's no independent reporting. So you don't really know what's happening. But you hear stories of just, you know, police in in China, just like they'll kill your pet or whatever it is, um, if if they feel that, you know, that, that was a very a sort of a famous thing that they, you know, they prevented a pregnant woman from going to the hospital um, and she lost her baby. And there's just like, there's all these, those are the sort of the, that caused lots of outrage in, in China. Um, and there's just all these stories about the aggressive, intrusive measures that the Chinese government is taking. I imagine that things are spotty because China's government is pretty regionalized. So it's not, it's the, the central government doesn't have that much control over the country. So um, so you'll see differences in how different uh, regions approach the problem. But generally speaking, you know, the incentive from the top is if you don't control this, you are, a, you know, you, to the, the regional uh, governor, you're like, you're a, a failure. We're going to fire you. We're going to, you know, maybe even prison, imprison you. So there's like they can get like super aggressive and arbitrary about what they're doing. And it's worked. It has 
stopped uh, COVID from spreading, but this is kind of the downside. And also, right. I mean, I understand is that China's been shut off from the rest of the of the world for the last year. Like the rest of the world started traveling, and like you, you know, people in in China are not traveling anymore. So you've effectively got this massive country that's such an important part of our economy, that just the global economy that just like no one is going really in or out. Right. If you have total authoritarianism with massive social acceptance of that authoritarianism, that people can't leave their homes, do anything, like absolute dystopia. We've learned, yes, that can make a significant dent in the spread of COVID until you relax those measures and then your, your populace then gets whatever variant was, you know, that you delayed getting, right? There's a sort, I think that's, that's a phenomenon here that, that you're, you're able to delay having your, your population, but unless you're literally willing to do these measures till the end of time, till the entire world global economy crashes, you're, you're kind of just delaying what's going to happen. Although there's benefit to delaying. There is benefit you know, to delaying for, then, for vaccines and therapeutics. Right, and exactly. Things, and then yeah. people will know, okay, don't do this, do that right. instead. But then somebody has to be first in order to find those things out. If everybody delays it, then you're all in the same boat once you finally do open your doors back up and go out there. The few people that I've, t- I've spoken to that are in China say that they did go through these very, very strict lockdown measures, but uh, and it was very harsh, but they all did it, and many of them very willingly, and then they were able to go back to, to normal a, a lot faster and into more of a normalcy than what many of the Western countries, like what we've experienced here, because they were so harsh in their lockdown measures. So for them, it was like small periods of lockdowns. The lockdowns were extremely intense, and then they would go back to normal and then maybe go back into these lockdowns. And so I'm curious, do you think, Matt, that the world will look at China and say that's the way to go in the future? I don't know. I mean, it just depends. So you're right that there are advantages to delay. One of the problems that China has is they just don't have that many hospital beds. We have a lot more hospital beds here per person. And and so they're trying to figure out what do we do uh, you know, if COVID hits there, it could it could be really problematic in a way that it's not um, in many other places. So a delaying strategy allows them to plan for transitioning out of zero COVID to a more normalized form and uh, with vaccines and treatments and more capacity. That's the ideal that they are able to, you know, manage the transition out of zero COVID without uh, without that much suffering. I don't know if they'll be able to do that. I mean, once a bureaucracy, this is the problem with with authoritarian or totalitarian states is is that they they can move really quickly, but then you know they're not insul they're kind of ins- they're insulated from the decision makers are insulated, and sometimes it's it's hard for even the decision makers to know what's going on, so they can't really change that quickly. Um, so I don't know uh, what whether they're going to be able to move out of this or whether they're going to like con- continue the bureauc the the bureaucratic intrusion that they've been having. I mean, that's kind of the open question. But you're right, there were really good reasons for delay. And, and hopefully they'll be able to, you know, move out of this without too much suffering. And, and Matt, are, are, are there any geopolitics at play here? This is happening, you know, as as the U.S. is saying that Russia is appealing to China, you know, for we, for weapons and material support of the Russian right. invasion of Ukraine. You have the U.S. warning China that if they do that, there will be consequences for them. They know that, you know, China knows that if it locks down Shenzhen, it's interestingly kind of a, a form of Western sanctions. It, it'll hurt China as well, just like our sanctions hurt our, us as well as everybody else. But is, is, is it convenient? Is it useful? Is that a complete coincidence that this, this will act to kind of as, as a form of sanctions in a way on the U.S.? 
I think it's coincidence. I mean, China is already engaged in sanctions. They're sanctioning Lithuania right now. They they pretend they don't sanction. They sanction companies and individuals all the time. So this is the, the idea that they don't believe in sanctions is nonsense. Um, I, I do think it's it's an open. You asked before about whether you know. I think China got was widely admired for how they handled COVID for a, a long period of time, and now it's kind of this open question about whether their transition will work and they might, that sort of admiration that they garnered might be undone. And that plus their support of Russia in this war uh, could you know, really be a strategic setback for the Chinese uh, government. I think Chinese strategists, you know, they believe that the US and the West are falling, that the East with China at the center is rising and that there's a new world order coming with China at the center. And they are explicit about, you know, seeking the downfall of U.S. military and cultural and financial and economic power. So all of all of what's happening has to be understood through that lens. They also just lie all the time. I mean, it's it's state policy. They believe that information is either Leninists. Um, they believe that putting out information is is purely about uh, power. They don't really have any, um, they, you know, they know there's a thing, it's truth, but they don't, as Leninists, they don't believe in, in truth when it comes from the government. So everything that they're doing and saying, I mean, I don't think that, I think it's a coincidence that Shenzhen was, is shut down right now, but you're right to be suspicious because they, you know, everything that the Chinese government does, all of their strategies are designed for what they think of as a historical inevitability of China sort of supplanting the U.S. as the dominant global power. Matt Stoller, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, we'll tell you what's on our radars. Robbie, what is on your radar? So yesterday, the hosts of The View opened their show with an extended criticism of former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard and Fox News host Tucker Carlson for allegedly spreading, quote, false Russian propaganda relating to Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. They also called on the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate the pair. Quote, they used to arrest people for doing stuff like this, lamented Whoopi Goldberg. Let's watch. But I think that's an incredibly relevant question. And I think DOJ, in the same way that it is uh, setting up a task force to investigate oligarchs, should look into people who are Russian propagandists and shilling for Putin. That's being, if you are a foreign asset uh, to a dictator, Mm -hmm. it should be investigated. In fact, I remember when Tulsi Gabbard, Mm -hmm. and I even hate that we're discussing it because I think to myself, who is this woman? They used to arrest people for doing stuff like this. If they thought you were... Uh, colluding with a Russian agent, if they thought you were putting out information or taking information and handing over to Russia. They used to actually investigate stuff like this, and I guess now, you know, there seems to be no bars. So I gather that Goldberg was referring to U.S. government efforts to root out Russian spies who fed information to the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And yes, it is indeed a crime to share state secrets with hostile foreign governments. That's not what Gabbard did, and that's not what Carlson did. It's not even close. Gabbard and Carlson and others who take a contrarian position on the Russia-Ukraine conflict are engaged in speech that's protected by the First Amendment. Their views might be wrong, but they are free to share them. Americans do not suddenly lose their rights to express political opinions that are disfavored by the mainstream media and the U.S. government in the event of a war between two other nations. Indeed, we should not lose our right to free speech even if the U.S. itself goes to war. 
A century ago, during World War I, the U.S. Supreme Court placed unfortunate restrictions on the rights of Americans to organize against war. While the, the decisions in Shank versus Ohio and Debs versus U.S. were never explicitly overturned, subsequent court decisions gradually invalidated the logic behind them. The modern Supreme Court takes a fairly maximal position on the First Amendment and the right to express anti-war views, even if some people view them as offensive, insensitive, or inaccurate. That's now well established, that right. The DOJ can't investigate Carlson for sounding insufficiently hostile to Vladimir Putin. Gabbard statements are also protected by the First Amendment, even if they constitute false Russian propaganda. But look, it's worth taking a closer look at her most recent claim because I'm not actually at all convinced it was characterized fairly. Let's listen to what she said. Here are the undeniable facts. There are 25 to 30 U.S. funded biolabs in Ukraine. According to the U.S. government, these biolabs are conducting research on dangerous pathogens. Ukraine is in an active war zone with widespread bombing, artillery, and shelling, and these facilities, even in the best of circumstances, could easily be compromised and release these deadly pathogens. So that line about U.S.-funded biolabs in Ukraine was branded Russian disinformation by The Washington Post, and Senator Mitt Romney called it treasonous lies. Now, to be clear, there's nothing treasonous about what she said, even if it was wrong. Treason is a crime. Theoretically, repeating Putin's justifications for war is not a crime. It's clearly not entirely wrong here, though, either. Undersecretary, Undersecretary of State Victoria Nuland recently confirmed to Senator Marco Rubio that the Senate for, of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that Ukraine does indeed possess biological research facilities and that she's worried about Russia taking them. Quoting the State Department, the New York Times described them as diagnostic and biodefense laboratories rather than biological weapons facilities. That sounds like gain-of-function research definition denial to me. The Times goes on to quote Robert Pope, director of the Pentagon's Cooperative Threat Reduction Program. Quote, Mr. Pope had warned that Russia's invasion of Ukraine may damage laboratories in the country that conduct research and disease surveillance and are supported by the United States. He noted that some of the facilities may contain pathogens once used for Soviet-era bioweapons programs, but he emphasized that they, Ukrainian labs currently did not have the ability to manufacture bioweapons. Quote, there is no place that still has any of the sort of infrastructure for researching or producing biological weapons, Mr. Pope said. Quote, scientists being scientists, it wouldn't surprise me if some of these strain collections in some of these laboratories still have pathogen strains that go all the way back to the origins of that program. End quote. Scientists being scientists? Well, forgive me for not being entirely set at ease by this, especially given what the public has learned about lax oversight in U.S.-funded foreign laboratories that conduct research on pathogens. A laboratory's research on pathogens can be of great concern whether or not the research being used to create a, is being used to create a weapon on purpose. Similarly, most people who suspect that COVID-19 emerged from the Wuhan laboratory, they think it was an accident, not a deliberate biological weapons program. Again, it's perfectly possible there's no real danger here. To be fair, both the Russians and Gabbard have raised erroneous concerns, maybe, about the laboratories. I don't know. I'm not sure how anyone, though, could be entirely certain that's the case. Indeed, while the Washington Post fact check laments that the American right has embraced Russian disinformation about U.S. bioweapon labs in Ukraine, well, the, actual, the actual article claims the loss of power to the lab in Kharkiv could inadvertently result in the release of several pathogens. 
And a Polish infectious disease epi epidemiologist said Kharkiv's Institute of Experimental and Clinical Veterinary Medicine is one of the best labs between Greasefall, Germany, and Pokrov, Russia, a distance of about 1,300 miles, wrote the Post Glenn Kessler. He said anthrax, avian influenza viruses, Francisella tulan, I, can, I can't even pronounce some of these, Brucella salmonella, uh, Borrelia sensu lato and the coronavirus. All of these things were studied at Kharkiv, a city now under siege with active agents stored until the invasion. And the hosts of The View want the DOJ to investigate or even imprison political commentators who are vexed by all of this. Really, it's a textbook example of why the mainstream media's push to outlaw so-called disinformation is deeply, deeply irresponsible. What about you guys? Are you nothing to see here? No, no what are you worried about? Russian it, disinformation to have any concern about well, as this. As long as the power stays on, sure. then, the, then the pathogens are fine. But it, scientists will be scientists, but when has that ever gone wrong before? Yeah. There's two, two, things, two things that I want to bring up while listening to this that, that kind of stick out to me. And the first is, you know, it's interesting that these ladies are calling for the imprisonment and the investigation of these people who are dissenting in some way or bringing up some issues, right? And these are the same people that then criticize Putin and say, well, he locks up yes, dissenters. Right. He locks exactly. up protesters, people who call out his war crimes or say that or, or go against the war, right? So it's it's interesting that it's it's bad for Putin to do it, but it's okay for us to do it, to point out political dissenters. And Putin sits there and says, well, the reason why I'm jailing these people is because I believe they're foreign agents. I believe that they're actually uh, set up and sponsored by the West, that they're infiltrating, and that's what they're here to do. So that stands out to me. And then secondly, um, another thing that, you know, when you brought up the courts and that the courts have decided that there's certain speech that is protected, my fear is as women of the view and others express these sort of anti-free speech sentiments that I would consider anti-free speech, the courts tend to change through time based on the culture of the of society. And we know that you know, Supreme Court rulings have changed from one era to another. And my fear is as society has a, continues to adopt this uh, idea of censoring that the courts eventually, as we get new Supreme Court justices mm -hmm. in, that they will say, yes, these, there are certain things you're not allowed to say. And that worries me quite a bit. Yeah, it's, it's really easy to see in hindsight, how it was that not just Eugene Debs uh, got locked up in World War I for opposing that war, but how so many good liberals who were supporters of FDR, supporters of the New Deal, were also supportive of interning thousands of Japanese people during World War II. When you see that mentality, and Keith Olbermann yesterday, I think, replied to the, the View ladies and was like, wanted to take it even further, like arrest them immediately, but show that we're a good democracy. Trials are a luxury of, right? Didn't he say something yeah, like that? It was not entirely clear if he was supporting a luxurious trial or saying that a trial is luxury and so therefore should not be allowed to people like Tucker Carlson. Uh, but you can see how a Keith Olbermann in 1942 is like, yes, round, round up all the right. Japanese. It's better to be safe than sorry. Right. This is a war. And you know, we've spent 50, 60, 70 years since then condemning that. And apparently that wasn't enough to inculcate people's rage, to say to people, don't give in to those impulses the next time another war comes around. And we're not even in this war, <laughs> which is the other. Wow, this is a war between Russia and Ukraine. It is, it is natural to be deeply sympathetic with Ukraine because they've been invaded 
by another country. But it's, the Russia hasn't invaded the U.S. the way that Japan you know, attacked mm-hmm. Hawaii. Right. And so, if, yeah, it, it makes me deeply concerned about what huge swaths of the country would be, would be and are willing to do in times of a, national, a real national security crisis. Are just, are so, and these are supposed to be political commentators who are so ignorant about basic precepts of the First Amendment that it, that yeah. it is not at all the same to, like, like, I don't know, obtain, you know, infiltrate the CIA or something and obtain information on some U.S. defense system and then share that with the Russian government. Yes, that that is treason. Yeah. And also, yes, <laughs> not just, just saying you disagree with our approach to Russia is clearly not treason. And if you are an unregistered asset of a foreign government, I think Tony Podesta got charged with this, right? Or at least mm-hmm. his, his lobbying firm got charged. What about Ukraine, actually, was it? I don't know. We there was a, yeah, we there could was Google a it. it might have been, kind of there, there was some, but a lot yeah. of foreign governments will, you know, fund different propaganda efforts inside right. the United States. You're supposed to register if you don't if you don't register and you're doing it specifically on their behalf and you know you're doing it on their behalf, uh, then you can be charged with a federal crime. Fine. But that's not, that doesn't seem to be exactly what they're talking about. Well, and that's not they're, what Tulsi and Tucker are doing. They, no, they no, might no. be, you might think they're wrong. I, I probably think they're wrong about some of the things they're saying on these topics. I don't know at all that they're wrong about the whole uh, the laboratory situation. Right. But they're saying these things because they believe them, or they have viewers and supporters who believe them, and they're giving voice to those, to what the viewers, it, they're, it's the lamest kind of, right. they must and be, the, they're being paid by the Russian government. No, they're not. Right, and the Tulsi thing seems to be actually true. Like, she right. seemed to be pretty <laughs> right. careful about, is it 25 to 30? I don't know if it's, it's exactly It seemed like it was at least 30. six based on my, and, okay, and fine. And people have but... said dozens, and I, what's a facility, yeah. and are there eight facilities within one facility? Yeah. Fine. You want to quibble with her number? It's but not a weapons lab. Right, it's exactly. just a lab where there are it's dangerous pathogens lab. that are stored, and some of those pathogens can only kill animals, but who knows? Scientists being scientists, yeah. we don't know what they've been doing. Which goes to the point that the you were making about the view ladies that they're okay th- themselves imprisoning dissenters and critics because their motives are good right and but putin's motives are bad and it's okay for us to do a, a biodefense lab that's for defense sure bioweapon lab <laughs> That's and some, so when I tweeted about this, I had some people responding to me saying, like, oh, you, you know, you're accusing me. This. You're parroting Russian propaganda, and you should, you know, ask a scientist, ask a health official what they think about these labs. I'm like, but these are the same people. Look, I, sure, I, I won't entirely discount what they're saying. It gives some comfort if they say there's nothing to be worried about in those labs. But some of these people, the same people say there's nothing to be worried about what's going on in Wuhan, and there's nothing to be worried about gain-of-function research or EcoHealth Alliance. Fauci's saying that, no, it's all above board. Sorry, these people don't have credibility with me and with but, the American but people But some of them anymore. also said there's nothing to worry about as long as the power doesn't go out in the city that's <laughs> right. being bombarded. <laughs> right. Then there might be something to worry about. Hmm. Unbelievable. But it's just Russian propaganda, so my apologies. It might for, also for be Russian <laughs> propaganda. That's the, it might that's, be both. Yes. It could be right. Yes. Anyway, I'm looking forward to your radar coming up next, Ryan. Well, Ryan, what's on your radar? Well, the fight over inflation is getting as hot as inflation itself. And it's one of the most consequential arguments we're having today, because if you believe that inflation is the result of workers having too much money, having too much purchasing power and bargaining power as a result, then the answer is to make sure that workers make less money. Now, there are two ways to do that. One is the simple way of cutting back on help. No more direct checks, no more extra unemployment, no more child tax credit, etc. The other way 
is to raise interest rates, which slows the economy and throws people out of work. With more unemployed people, workers can no longer bargain for higher wages. And with lower wages, they have less money to spend and prices come down. So that's the orthodox Reaganomics approach, and it's still the one that many politicians are calling for. But the truth is that wages are way too low, not too high. Now, if you accept that Reagan-era view of the economy, you're saying that workers having a few extra dollars in their bank accounts for a few months simply isn't something that we can tolerate. That's not a world that I want to live in. To me, rising wages are good, something we should fight for, not against. Now, in order to have rising wages without seeing inflation, the productivity of the economy has to be distributed to the workers themselves who produce all of that growth. Instead, the growth currently flows up to the top 1%, and rising wages get eaten up by rising prices. Rising inequality then produces a toxic political culture that divides people along culture war lines and allows the richest of the rich to quietly walk off the political battlefield, leaving everybody else to fight over scraps. That means that if workers want to continue improving their material lives, they need to make sure the economy keeps growing, but the gains are distributed downwards. And that's not going to happen on the trajectory we're on. And much of that is explained by former UK central banker Charles Goodhart. So at 85, he's now looking back at the last several decades of fairly stable prices and seeing an anomaly and warning that the labor shortages we're experiencing now are going to drive inflation for the next several decades, particularly as baby boomers continue to retire and consume far more than they produce. The answer for the U.S. is one the right wing doesn't want to hear immigration, both high-skilled and low-skilled. The resistance to immigration that many workers feel is rooted in a fear that these new workers will either take their jobs or push their wages down. But that's not how it works in an era of labor shortages. Without new workers, the economy will shrink. And yes, workers will have leverage, but they'll also have leverage in a crappy economy amid high inflation that gobbles up the raises they can get thanks to their leverage. The rich would prefer that the economy grow rather than shrink, but they're rich either way. Workers need productivity growth if they're going to improve their situation. Now, you might think that by restricting immigration, you're actually helping a worker who's already here. But if that immigration would have fueled growth that creates new jobs, and instead you don't have that growth and you don't have those jobs, you actually screwed that worker over when you thought you were helping them. And so the country over the next few decades that it can attract the most immigrant talent is going to be the one that continues to grow and one in which domestic workers have a chance to do the best. That'll require them teaming up with the new workers to organize against the elites. But without these new workers, there won't be much of a pie to fight over. One country that understands this is Germany, and it's now trying to recruit up to 400,000 skilled workers a year. But because of political, cultural, and bureaucratic obstacles, they're only likely to hit about half of that. So with bitterness over the 2015 refugee crisis still simmering, they're going to have a hard time meeting that. Now, one advantage the U.S. has over a country like Germany is that far more people around the world have a grasp of English than German. And relative to much of the rest of the world, the U.S. can be a pretty good place to live, which will remain a major competitive advantage we have in the coming competition. The question is whether we want to take advantage of it or want to cut off our nose to spite our face. So ultimately, this, this to me, this comes down to economic growth. What kind of economy is going to be best for people who are already here? And it's true that there will be less competition for jobs 
if we can build walls and keep everybody out, but there will also be many fewer jobs. So, so how, do you, how do you manage that trade-off? Yeah, I mean, I'm with you that we, we need to continue allowing immigration, for sure. I think a lot of countries like Germany, as you pointed out, um, as their own population becomes more educated, you know, Germans, they have, uh, I believe it's in their constitution that education is a right over there, so they're all very educated, because um, anybody, even international students get education, I think, there for free. So as they become more educated and they're taking these high-skilled jobs, they don't have people to take the lower-skilled jobs that typically, you know, blue-collar jobs, I would say. So they've said, we need to immigrate people in. Um, and so they have taken like, a million Syrians and other refugees. Um, and they freaked out about it. And, right, a lot of people did. And the same thing in the Nordic countries. They were like, we're losing population. They're trying to start to pay people to have children. Mm -hmm. right? right? And then they said, we've got to import people in. And of course, people do freak out about that. So as societies become more first world and more advanced, they definitely need to somehow open up the doors. And, because people just have fewer kids. Yeah. You know, my dad is one of seven. China, even. Right, right. And then people, yeah, and then people start to have fewer and fewer children. But my question is, you know, in, when you compare Germany to the United States, how, what is their unemployment like? Because we still do have unemployed people here in the United States. So before we can, I think, make the case to bring in others, we need to figure out why we have certain levels of, of unemployment, get them. And, and get these people skilled enough. Now, is it because they're mentally ill and they can't work? Is it because they're older, you know, nearing retirement and they don't want to work anymore, but they still count in that unemployment range? Well, yeah, at the, at the height, labor force participation, I think, is almost exactly where it was at the beginning of the pandemic, if, if that's what you mean by the people who have stopped looking. But as far as people who are looking, like at the height of the Great Recession, there was something like six or seven people looking for every job opening. Mm -hmm. We now have something like three jobs for every one person looking, which is a huge swing in just 15 years or so. Yeah, I'm, you know, very supportive of immigration. I, I think there tend to be three arguments against uh, bringing in more immigrants. Um, the economic arguments, I, I really don't accept because like you, I think that Right, we would bring them in and it would create a lot of economic growth. And then maybe we have to be concerned about who benefits from that economic growth. But there's really, there's really no argument on the other side. It does create a lot of economic growth. There are jobs we need immigrants to do. The other two arguments, one is cultural and one is sort of like terrorism related. I don't really buy the cultural argument either. The concerns that many on the right have that immigrants are going to you know, impact our, our culture changes. So a lot of the immigrants, at least that we're getting to the United States, are conservative, <laughs> are, are religious and, uh, and anti-socialist, as if they're coming from Latin America. The, the only semi-legitimate, I think, ar argument against immigration or reason to be concerned uh, is, the, is the terrorism uh, kind of category, which doesn't apply so much to us. But I can understand you know, Europe being afraid to take in Maybe it was the right thing to do, and they should still do it nevertheless, but like the Syrian refugees, for instance, concerns that there would be terrorists among them, that sort of thing. I, so I don't, I'm not going to totally dismiss that one. I think national security reasons are valid, and governments can make rules or look at how, what do we do to keep the country safe. I think they go way too far on that usually. 
uh, but the economic and cultural reasons I find right. even less compelling. That's interesting. I actually think it's the other way around. That's yeah, good. We I, disagree. You're right. I, I actually think the terrorism aspect is not something we really need to worry too much about. I mean, I know that there are terrorist attacks that happen. They are in Europe, obviously, way more so than here. Uh, we could make the argument that it's because of these immigrants that come in. But I actually think it's because of the culture of Europe where they don't fully integrate people into society. Like in France, you're French if you're French, but you're not really French if you're not born there, even if you've only ever been in France. Italians have a similar mentality, so they have a little bit more of a, uh, you know, they're, mm -hmm. they're very proud of their culture, whereas America's a bit different. We're more of a country of immigrants. So I don't think people coming in from other countries would feel as oppressed necessarily and would feel as uh, othered. And so in I don't US. think they would in the U.S. Right. And so I don't think that there would be as large of a threat of terrorism. I actually think there's more of a threat of the cultural. And I don't think that liberals take this as seriously enough. And I think it's for the reasons you pointed out, where you say a lot of these immigrants are conservative. Right. right. I'm not concerned about the impact, the, the, the I, impact they're going to have on our, our culture. Well, but maybe you would as a libertarian, because a lot of them coming in from South America, for example, are very pro-life. And so, you know, California, for example, we're bringing in so many people from Latin America, and they very well could change the dynamic of the political structure in California where they say, yeah, we are actually more pro-life than we are pro-choice now. There's more of us than there are of you on this particular issue. And a lot of them might vote Democrat. They might have a lot of Democratic values in other ways, but there are certain cultural issues where they are more conservative. And I think liberals don't take that seriously enough. A lot of people from around the world are not as open to LGBTQ. They're just not. And we have to... Well, they're getting more so. They're getting more so. Yeah. Of course, people as, you know, exposure... The first generation of immigrants are not, but then their right. kids are and yeah. their grandkids. Well, maybe. Sometimes. I mean, but, yes, it, you know, it's a slow... It's, a, it's, it's yeah. slow. It takes a few generations to kind of get people to change their minds on those things that they were raised with. And so I actually think liberals don't take the culture aspect uh, really seriously right. enough. That's a good point. And I think on both of those fronts, we have enough to worry about from people born in America. Like, I, I always find it funny, a country that has something like 400 million weapons worried about dangerous people coming into the country. Right. It's like, <laughs> calls coming from inside the house. Yeah. And separately, we've got our own homegrown uh, anti-abortion movement that's doing quite well. That we definitely would be buttressed by some more support, but they're they're on a roll. Uh, at, you know, they control the Supreme Court. They control half the country at this point. Right. I. Yeah. I'm I'm saying to the right, who is very concerned about immigrants, that right. Republicans they, will never right. win if we be, bring in all these immigrants. Right. I'm like, I'm looking what what these immigrants think on yeah. on your issues, and if anything, it's the reverse. Right. Register them right. immediately before yeah. they have kids, right. and their kids vote for the Democrats. That's why yeah. I'm hoping Republicans don't catch on to this, because I think yeah. if, if if Republicans realize, wait a minute, a lot of these people are super conservative, and they started to embrace them more and bring them into the fold, then we might see. Uh, more change uh, towards conservatives. The GOP hasn't caught on yet. No. So, so. No, they, they'd rather lie to the HVAC repair guy and say <laughs> that his problems are the result of people crawling over the wall. Yeah, to get his vote instead right. of all the people right. coming into the country. Right. Doesn't make any sense. But we're looking forward to your radar coming up next. Kim? Kim, what's on your radar? Well, Russia and China issued a joint statement declaring a friendship between the two nations that knows no limits, that directly challenges the United States as the global power, criticizes the expansion of NATO and other military alliances, as well as points the finger at the U.S. for using excuses of spreading democracy in order to engage in hostile actions. 
They basically said in this statement that the once weaker kids on the block are now bigger and stronger and won't take the West crap anymore. So we're going to go over some sections of this 12-page statement. And while we do, remember that this was issued on February 4th. 20 days before Russia invaded Ukraine. No one really paid attention to this document when it was released. They just figured Russia and China were posturing and pretending to be all big and powerful. But don't worry, they're all bark, no bite. They're still too small, they claimed. And then the invasion happened. The West attempted sanctions on Russia and tried to cut them off from the world. And I've argued that it all, all it really did was speed up the transition away from one global currency and one global power towards the multipolar world order Russia and China declared was coming only a month ago. You see, people have been arguing that there's no way China's SIPs could replace SWIFT. They say their currency is too weak or unstable to replace the dollar as the global currency. But maybe the goal, at least this first step goal, isn't to replace these systems, but rival them instead, like MasterCard to Visa or Pepsi to Coke. Next thing you know, they might be Facebook to MySpace. Start off the smaller of the two, only to clobber them a few years down the line. After all, one part of this document declares the countries are intending to form a Russia India-China East Asia cooperation that will include a variety of sectors such as trade and defense. And last I checked, China and India in particular have a lot of people, meaning trade will be very lucrative and defense very robust. So let's go over some of the aspects of this document. It's called Joint Statement of the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China on the International Relations Entering a New Era and the Global Sustainable Development. Quite a mouthful. Uh, they start off by saying, quote, a trend has emerged towards redistribution of power in the world, and the international community is showing a growing demand for leadership aiming at peaceful and gradual development. Some actors representing but the minority on the international scale continue to advocate unilateral approaches to addressing international issues and resorts to force. They interfere in the internal affairs of other states, infringing their legitimate rights and interests. They say this is hampering the development of progress in mankind. Now, before we go on, the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China are together referred to throughout this document as the sides. So the document goes on to state, the sides believe that certain states, military and political alliances and coalitions seek to obtain directly or indirectly unilateral military advantages to the detriment of the security of others. Wonder who they're talking about. The sides oppose further enlargement of NATO and call on the North Atlantic Alliance to abandon its idealized Cold War approaches. The sides are seriously concerned about the trilateral security partnership between Australia, the United States, and the United Kingdom, AUKUS. In particular, their decision to initiate cooperation in the field of nuclear-powered submarines. They say this is increasing the danger of an arms race in the region and poses serious risks of nuclear proliferation. They say the nuclear weapons states should abandon the Cold War mentality and zero-sum games and reduce the role of nuclear weapons in their national security policies. They express concern over the advancement of U.S. plans to develop global missile defense and deploy its elements in various regions in the world and even into outer space, saying they support an international commitment not to be the first to place weapons in space, preventing a space arms race. The document calls us calls out U.S. bioweapons and chemical, chemical weapon activities. They call on the United States to accelerate the elimination of our stockpile of chemical weapons. 
Now, regarding democracy, they say there is no one-size-fits-all template to, guide, to guiding countries in establishing democracy. A nation can choose such forms and methods of implementing democracy that would best suit its particular state based on its social and political system, its historical background, traditions, and unique cultural characteristics. It is only up to the people of the country to decide whether their state is a democratic one, they say. The sides believe that the advocacy of democracy and human rights must not be used to put pressure on other countries. They oppose the abuse of democratic values and interference in the internal affairs of sovereign states under the pretext of protecting democracy and human rights and any attempts to incite divisions and confrontation in the world. Now, they don't only discuss these military and defense issues and point out the U.S., but they also discuss the Russian and China trade partnership they're forming within the Belt and Road Initiative. They call on developed countries to help the developing ones catch up. They talk about investing in sustainable transport and fighting climate change. They also address the origins of COVID, saying that, quote, that ascertaining the origin of the new coronavirus infection is a matter of science. Research on this topic must be based on global knowledge, and that requires cooperation among scientists from all over the world. The sides oppose politicization of these issues. The sides call on the global community to jointly promote a serious scientific approach to the study of the coronavirus origin. Now, they end this joint statement asserting themselves and claiming they are the world's powers calling for peace in the world, saying, quote, the sides call for the establishment of a new kind of relationship between world powers on the basis of mutual respect, peaceful coexistence, and mutually beneficial cooperation. They reaffirmed that the new interstate relations between Russia and China are superior to political and military alliances of the Cold War era. Friendship between the two states has no limits. There are no forbidden areas of cooperation. Strengthening of the bilateral strategic cooperation is neither aimed against third countries nor affected by the changing international environment and circumstantial changes in third countries. The sides reiterate the need for consolidation, not division, of the international community, the need for cooperation, not confrontation. The sides oppose the return of international relations to the state of confrontation between major powers when the weak fall prey to the strong. The sides intend to resist attempts to substitute universally recognized formats and mechanisms that are consistent with international law for rules elaborated in private by certain nations or blocks of nations and are against, against addressing international problems indirectly and without consensus, oppose power politics, bullying, unilateral sanctions, and extraterritorial application of jurisdiction, as well as the abuse of export control policies and support trade facilitation in line with the rules of the World Trade Organization. The sides reaffirm their intention to strengthen foreign policy coordination, pursue true multilateralism, strengthen cooperation on multilateral platforms, defend common interests, support the international and regional balance of power and improve global governance. So one thing that I really want to point out as well about this document is that they talk a lot about the UN, how they want to use the UN as the sort of um, guide for how the world should be run or, or who should be leading the world. They, as I also mentioned before, they did talk about India being part of their new East Asia cooperative, and India was one of those nations that did not condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They also assert in this document uh, China's one-nation policy. 
and uh, and they also brought up holding Nazis accountable, which is what Putin has been using as one of the excuses for going into Ukraine uh, is to you know or to denazify the place. So interesting document. Uh, curious what you guys think about. I mean, th- you know, this came out February fourth, and you know, here we are. Bunch of lies and platitudes. <laughs> yeah, the top part was hilarious, where they're like, it's outrageous that some countries invade the sovereignty of other <laughs> yeah. countries and resort to Outrageous, military. I say. Outrageous. It does feel, you know, when you read it now, after Russia has invaded Ukraine, it does feel a bit like, wait, you know, all of these things that you've said in here, I'm not really sure about. But again, they do state in this document, they state... Uh, well, we, we, you know, we're, we believe in the one China policy and we, we believe in that denazification. So they almost did set like this. Well, we, we don't agree with this kind of growing military power around the world. We don't really agree with NATO expanding, but, and we're maybe willing to do something about that to stop this and in order to rebalance the globe. So uh, they didn't really kind of, um, take away their opportunity to do this. I would kind of worry now a little bit about Taiwan seeing this after seeing what's happened in Ukraine and this document being put out. But they do definitely say, look, there's a new world order and it's multi China might worry that getting Taiwan would be more trouble than they thought it would previously, point, watching yeah. Russia struggle in Ukraine. Um, yeah. I think some of these, you know, these untested military forces uh, right. might... Yeah, and China has managed to grow exponentially without getting into any major wars. Mm-hmm. And th- they have been flirting with whether or not they want to change that by conquering Taiwan. And, and I think you're right that they've looked at this and been like, maybe we should keep up with the, right. the, the non-militaristic way of expanding. And b- breaking news out of the Wall Street Journal today that relative, relevant to this is that Saudi Arabia is saying that it is considering selling its oil to China in Yuan, which has been mm-hmm. the thing that China has been pushing for for decades and, and would fundamentally undermine the strength of the, the U.S. petrodollar. Right. And which is just a gigantic told you so. Uh, you're, you know, for people in the U.S. who have been saying reliance on fossil fuels and American empire is actually on its own terms not as uh, as stable or as uh, or as effective a strategy as you think it's going to be, because we have invested so much blood and treasure in kind of con- trying to control the Middle East, so that when there would be a global crisis, that we would then have access to all of the oil in that region to keep our economy going through that crisis. Now we're at that crisis. Our entire strategy had one job, and it's not doing it. And Saudi Arabia is like, actually, you know what? Maybe we'll just sell the oil to right. China instead. So all, all the people that died for oil. So you know, in 2003, the slogan among the left was no blood for oil. We actually spilled a lot of blood and aren't even getting oil. Well, and that's what this document really, in reading it, kind of, um, it, to me, it's like this ominous warning of, and the fact that it did happen, I know we can look at it and say, well, it's Jesus really hypocritical that, you know, they write this, they issue this and then they and then Russia invades Ukraine. But actually, it almost feels like in reading this entire document that it was perhaps planned that they issued this out 20 days later, Russia invades Ukraine. And and they it's oh, almost it like set, they yeah. they absolutely knew what the response would be from the West, which would be sanctions, which would be turning off the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would then justify this move towards this new petro yuan 
right? Where it's like, and, and, and I don't think it will replace, like I mentioned, I don't think this is going to be a replacement petro type dollar or replacement um, to SWIFT. I just think it's going to be, as they kind of stated in this document, multipolar. It's not unipolar anymore with just American hegemony. And so that, I, I mean, to me, it's, they said it, they warned us. They said, this is what we're doing. These are the things we oppose. And now they're implementing this strategy. And quite frankly, it's working. But China's problem is that their wages are rising in China as they're, as they're confronting their own labor shortage. And as a result, they're pushing their prices up. And, and that's one thing that's driving inflation over here. So their growth strategy over the last 40 years was low wages, low prices. That's how right. they're going to grow and export. They need the entire world to be there market for their products or not a, 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 they can move a it all decimated to India and they become a first it, world they become you, they rise up like everybody else and they start to get you know better jobs and higher educations and they start to manufacture everything in Africa which is why they've been doing all that investment down there and then importing up cheap goods long term they do, they do seem to be trying to push into Africa for for low wage labor but the consumer base in India and Russia can't support the growth that China needs because China is such a growth dependent economy that if their growth target, if they can still grow, but if they don't hit their growth target, then they start to have domestic problems. And so that's why people are, are saying that we're not so sure that all of this is going to work out as well for them. It, it, it might, they might pull a rabbit with, out of a hat. But. You could have had that argument about the U.S. Industrial Revolution. Yeah. And then it was just like, okay, well, then what happens after we start exporting? We get Trump. Or, yeah, that's what happens. Well, <laughs> yeah, a long no, time. That, that, that that's a why. long time. I mean, it took decades to get to that right, point. Right, we had, did mass incarceration, and we did other things right. to, like, tamp down on it. But, yeah, it, it came home to roost in the, in the form of the toxic political culture that we yeah. have today. And, and Ch China's government doesn't want to have to try to figure out how to deal deal with that. They're trying to lock down a totalitarian surveillance state before. Well, and I don't even think we need to worry about what they're doing necessarily. You know, the, for, I think we need to start worrying about ourselves a bit and saying, oh, crap, you know, now they are implementing this new strategy. They're doing it. It's working. So yeah. what are we going to do to protect our economy if the dollar is no longer the dominant and really the only global currency? What are we going to do? And we, I don't, we, it's like we're in denial. <laughs> Time to yeah. wake up, guys. You know, this is happening. It's happening now. And we didn't prepare for it. So what are we going to do? Mm. It's going to collapse our economy. And, we, you know, unless we start realizing that, the, that this is happening. And our whole answer is just drill, baby, drill. That's, that's all our political system can come up with. And our rising panel joins us next. We're going to go over Senator Rand Paul's new effort to oust Dr. Fauci. Stay tuned for that. Yesterday, Senator Rand Paul introduced an amendment to remove Dr. Anthony Fauci as director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. Paul deemed Fauci a dictator-in-chief who imposed lockdowns that caused an economic disaster, referencing the Johns Hopkins study that showed lockdowns did more harm than good when it came to stopping the spread. Fauci has been the head of the NIAID since 1984. In an op-ed for Fox News, the senator proposed dividing Fauci's position into three separate new institutes led by a director with a five-year term to create accountability into a position that has, quote, largely abused its power. Political reporter at The Hill, Julia Manchester, and culture editor at The Federalist, Emily Jashinsky, are with us to weigh in on Senator Paul's amendment. 
Hello, welcome to the show. So, uh, starting off with you, Emily, uh, what do you think about this this idea? I mean, you know, Fauci's like what eighty something years in his eighties. He's been the head of of the NIH for a really long time. So, what do you think of Senator Paul's amendment to break it up and to have a five year term? Yeah, I think it's interesting because the problems are clearly, clearly deeper than Fauci. You know, again, we can't we, we can't set aside how dramatically I think his leadership, dramatically negatively, his leadership affected um, the response to the lockdowns. That's, of course, true. But what we saw is that with this lumbering bureaucracy, there were so many problems that went beyond Fauci anyway. And so I think, at least directionally, Rand Paul saying we're going to uh, look at the structural changes that need to happen here is really smart. Um, it's also really interesting to note that Fauci has sort of just finally faded into the background, presumably uh, on the wishes of the Biden administration. But it has been over the last few weeks really interesting to see um, how he suddenly went from being on every show that he could, you know, that would take him basically um, to fading completely into the background. And I think that's very telling. Yeah, Julia, you know, I think it's interesting that for all the Republican anger directed at Anthony Fauci and, you know, to some degree, the CDC, health, public health officials in general. Um, you haven't seen an actual major legislative push, really, to do anything about it. Is this just another case of, you know, Republicans talk about a culture war, but they, it's just something they talk about. They don't actually legislate and they don't make any claims to legislate. So, so Paul's actually putting something on the table, but I don't know that the GOP has any interest in, in doing something. Yeah, I think you're going to hear critics of this idea from Rand Paul essentially saying this and also pointing out that Rand Paul has a history of engaging in back and forths with Dr. Fauci, you know, on television during these hearings. It seems like it's some uh, must-see TV for people watching, um, you know, for those who hate Dr. Anthony Fauci and those who love him. But, you know, I think it's interesting. I think you are going to see a lot of experts, a lot of lawmakers looking at what went wrong during the coronavirus pandemic, what they could have done better, what went right. And I think this is going to essentially be a bit of an autopsy of how this was handled. You know, I think defenders of Anthony Fauci, defenders, um, you know, of the CDC's response would say, look, this was a virus that no one really knew about. They were essentially learning as they went along. Um, while critics would definitely say that um, there was a control factor here and lockdowns were uh, har harmful to a degree. So, you know, this is, I think, politicized to an extent on both sides, but we would be remiss to not talk about Rand Paul's history with Dr. Fauci here. Yeah, and all, Rand Paul's also the only member of the GOP to hold out on the anti-Iran deal letter saying to Biden, quote, condemning a deal that is not yet formulated is, a, is uh, akin to condemning diplomacy itself, not a very thoughtful position. And that's hard to argue with, Emily. So why is that not the universally held opinion on the Republican side here? Oh, wow, that was a hard pivot. <laughs> <laughs> I just do what the prompter tells me. <laughs> I wanted to talk about how term limits could actually increase the revolving door problem because, I mean, it's it's true that Fauci's sort of clubbiness, you can see it in the leaked emails and the FOIA emails, um, and The Intercept has done a lot of good reporting on this. Um, it, it could make it worse. So that's one final point. To, to this next question, I think absolutely um, there's 
grounds in this case, given that the deal, there, there's a prior deal that essentially is trying to be revived. And so I actually do understand it more in this case. Generally, I would be with Senator Paul on this, that he's, he's sort of standing against the posturing. But I think it's pretty clear what the administration's goals are, given that they are you know, quite explicitly trying to revive a deal that existed in the past. So I, I do see the grounds um, for the, the criticism at that point. Yeah, what do you make of it, Julia? The uh, yeah, I think it harkens back to a, a time, I don't know how many years ago now, um, many years ago, where Rand Paul was, you know, he didn't like Trump at the beginning, or he criticized Trump when he was running against him. He used to be someone in, I think, somewhat better standing with uh, with the media. With uh, he, he was looked to as an interesting uh, a, you know, leader of a sort of ideologically libertarian or small government contingent, the Tea Party wing, whatever you want to call it, within the Republican Party. You know, now he's, I think he's perceived more as being just, you know, one of another, one of the many very conservative senators or something like that. Uh, but this, you know, is a reminder of a time where he would, uh, where he would buck uh, the Republican Party in a way that would, would get him some, some appreciation. Um, so, so I, I thought that was interesting. Uh, you know, what what is your take on it? Yeah, absolutely. It is a bit of a reminder of that time. Um, you know, but at the same time, I think there, you know, Rand Paul and even President Trump to an extent. Really, uh, on Capitol Hill. So, you know, with a lot of these, you know, this posturing, these statements that come out, I mean, I don't think it's entirely surprising. I think, you know, Rand Paul is probably taking a number of different factors into account here um, and maybe taking a more forward looking approach, um, you know, seeing how the deal could potentially develop, maybe uh, how, you know, whether it does stand to be developed at this point. We have to remember this is, has to do with um, energy and it is an authoritarian government. And we're hearing, you know, this might be getting a bit off track, but, you know, I'd be remiss to not talk about, obviously, the Biden administration sanctions on Russia, Russian oil. And then, of course, we have talk of the Biden administration potentially uh, relying or starting to rely on Venezuelan oil, for example. So I think when it comes to energy and these foreign governments, um, you know, we're sort of entering into unknown territory here. And I think, you know, lawmakers are very cognizant of that. And, and Emily, because we weren't completely done with Fauci, I, I do want to ask, <laughs> is there... We never are. We never are. But are Republicans... How, how, how done with him are Republicans? Like, is, does he have the same heat around him that he had, say, three or four months ago? Like, is he firing base voters up just as much or as we kind I of think so. transition? Yeah, I'm, I'm genuinely curious because uh, you, you have your finger much more on the pulse of that than I do. My, my suspicion is that absolutely 100% yes, he will never go away as a lightning rod because these last two years were genuinely very traumatic for the country as a whole, and he became the very symbol. I mean, I think he's just sort of that indelible symbol of the excesses, especially on the right. The way that he said, if you criticize me, you're criticizing science itself. Um, he embodied so perfectly and so visibly. He was on TV every single day. You know, there were new clips every single day. 
day, the sort of hubris of, uh, you know, the, these insulated bureaucrats that so rankle people on the right. And I think some people in the middle, too. So I actually think, you know, we will we, Fauci could retire, uh, but his he will never not be an intense lightning rod and the kind of lightning rod that gives Republicans a sort of template to tap into and say, this is what people despise um, and, and sort of try to strategize that with their messaging and say, how else can we replicate um, and, and tap into that intense uh, fury that exists over Fauci in, in other cases? Well, I'm glad that Ryan brought it back to Fauci because I wasn't done with him either <laughs> on this. Um, but the, you know, I, I'm one that believes, you know, the guy made a lot of mistakes, maybe even intentionally should be held accountable for that. But I'm curious if you think that going after political, going after these government workers for their decision making, if that is going to create, if you think, and I'll start with you, Julie, if you think this is going to create a better society, I mean, we see other societies that do hold their government officials accountable and they'll even jail them. Uh, you know, they'll really go after Hell them. Hell yeah, jail them. Yeah, so, but I, you know, but then I wonder. Robbie just got, went full locker up. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And that's kind of my point there is, you know, does this actually create a better society? Would, be, would we be going in the right direction if we said, look, these people that are, you know, because a lot of me says, yes, of course, you know, we need to hold them accountable. They're, they're the government workers that are, are politicians who, you know, get rich in office or take advantage of their of their position of power, so they should be held accountable. A lot of me thinks that, but then part of me thinks, yeah, but do we really want to become one of these countries that just throws political opponents into jail? Because it could be abused, of course. So is it better to go after him or is it better to say, you know, the best thing to do is not to go after him uh, legally, but instead just say term limits, get him out of office. We need to have you know, d different checks and balances on our, on our political class and on our government workers. What do you think? Well, I think um, we have to look at what kind of precedence this would send and what going after him means. Um, you know, if you're going after, you know, a government official legally, and, you know, there's certainly precedent for that in the past, um, that's one scenario. But, um, you know, I think term limits is something that, you know, will be floated going forward. And it's not just Anthony Fauci where we talk about, you know, term limits. We also talk about shorter term limits, you know, the idea of shorter term limits being floated for U.S. senators, for example. You know, there's always, there's some Sometimes the debate floated as to whether um, Supreme Court justice, justices should be term limited. This is all, these are all ideas that are floated and it all has to do with that revolving door and potentially whether we can get some sort of balance here. Yeah. Emily, what do you think? I think if people break the law, they should be treated equally, regardless of whether they're Anthony Fauci um, or some person in Cleveland. Um, and so if Anthony Fauci broke the law and there's there's sufficient evidence of it, um, there absolutely there should be a legal pursuit of it because, you know, he was in a, a position of vast power over the course of the last two years and he, he should be held accountable. So the legal route, of course, um, I, I think, of course, take the legal route to the extent that there, there are actual legal avenues um, to litigate whether or not he, he broke the law. The then by all means, um, they should be right. pursued because that's also a message to other sort of unelected bureaucrats that yeah. Ooh, they, Robbie, they can't maybe, get away with that. And, and Emily, maybe this is how the left gets Republicans on board for repealing qualified immunity. 
This is right? it. Like, yeah. sorry, so would, sorry, police unions. This is called the I Anthony Fauci qualified it, immunity. Yes. <laughs> I settle for making it much easier to fire public employees. That's what we really want. And qualified immunity gets in the way. And yeah, the right needs to embrace that. But Julia, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, Bacha Ungar Sargan joins us next to discuss the elite class's guilt trip on gas prices. Stay with us. We're all aware that gas prices are surging across the country, but what else is this affecting? According to the Washington Post, airlines are cutting flights, truckers are adding fuel surcharges, and businesses are hiking prices to make ends meet. And as Republicans point the finger at President Biden for worsening inflation, the administration has gone all in on blaming Putin for America's economy. Here's Biden on Friday. Make no mistake, inflation is largely the fault of Putin. I love, you know, the Republicans saying it's Biden's gas pipeline. By Biden said he's going to stop the Keystone Pipeline, and I did. And that's the reason prices went up. Folks, let's get something straight here. The Keystone Pipeline was two years away. It had been 2% finished. Give me a break. <laughs> so deputy editor at Newsweek, Baya Unger Sargon, joins us now to discuss. And so, uh, Baya, I think there, there's all sorts of disrespect uh, toward working people going on around here. Because to tell them that actually it was the Keystone XL pipeline that is driving up your gas prices is also a lie. So mm. I guess it's a... We're, I guess we're gauging who's lying more to people. What, I mean, what's been your response to how Democrats, we can start with Democrats, how they've handled this? Look, I think that a lot of what passes for leftist liberal culture today is essentially economic privilege masquerading as morality. You saw this with the COVID lockdowns, you know, people who could afford to work from home from white collar jobs, dressed that up as some sort of moral high ground. You saw it with defund the police, people who live in safe neighborhoods who never need the police were able to dress up that economic privilege as morality. You see it with a lot of the environmental because yes, the Keystone Pipeline, that would have been 14,000 union jobs that got wiped off the map in, you know, the stroke of a pen. And now you're seeing it with, you know, gas prices. You know, inflation started long before this war. And essentially what liberal elites have done is found a way to blame inflation on working class Americans who can't afford it, who can't afford these gas prices. Now they're saying, oh, you don't care enough about Ukraine, right? It's it's again this this move of taking economic privilege, people who can afford to pay more for gas, people who drive electric cars, right, and dressing that up as morality at the expense of the working class. Right, and it's that kind of attitude that the liberal elites have, where they're saying, "You have to sac I'm sacrificing. We we got to sacrifice." But sacrifice doesn't mean as much coming from you as it means to people who, when they fill up and gas costs as much as it does right now, that makes a, a meaningful difference to them because maybe they have less money for food or for housing or for something else. It is absolutely maddening to hear millionaires saying, we are in this together, we need to sacrifice. Who's we? You know, you are not in a we with a struggling working class who's making 
30, 40, 50,000 dollars a year who can't afford to pay six, seven dollars, you know, a gallon for gas, that that means they're going to have to choose between taking their kid to soccer practice and going to church on Sunday, right? There's no we there. And yet that imposition of economic privilege as morality, getting high off of being rich and acting like that makes you a better person. So much of liberal culture is, is, is caught up in that. Yeah, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of celebrities that have been have been uh, pushing this. I think Tom Hanks was one, which was uh, kind of disappointing to see. And there have been a number of, of uh, rich celebrities coming out being like, well, this is our duty, you know, because we're at war, which we're not even at war. But um, also the mainstream media has been pushing this, as you've been mentioning about this. Oh, well, you'll pay more because it's helping the people of Ukraine. Bette Midler is another one. She tweeted out this photo of a Ukrainian toddler and said, I'll happily pay more gas for her. And you actually talked about this when you were on Bill Maher's show, so let's take a listen to that. This is class warfare masquerading as vanity morals. It's the morals of the elites, and who has to pay the price? It's the working class. It's the guy. It's, it's on the front. You know, they're going to buy electric cars. It's like it's no, like the let them eat cake of no, 2020, right? Let them drive electric cars, right? Yeah, I mean. Uh, Batya, really good points here. It's interesting to see how inflation has clearly been increasing at a rapid rate for months now, months and months and months. And now suddenly there's an excuse and it's Ukraine. It's, it's Russia, right? Russia's the problem. Why this month, or I think February was 7.9% inflation. The month before it was 7.5%. And it's just gone up and up and up and up. And it was even before there was actually a war going on. Do you think because I'm a little suspicious. Do you think that one of the reasons why we're even pushing Ukraine to continue battling Russia rather than negotiate with their nucle nuclear neighbor, rather than saying you guys need to go to the table because it is not a good idea to be enemies with a country right up on your border that has nukes? Uh, do you think that we're kind of pushing this a little bit in order to have this excuse so that the Biden administration can say, well, it's not uh, once they realized it wasn't transitory inflation, it's not whatever it is the problem that really is, but it's instead Putin's problem. So I, I don't think that that's the case because I think that Biden has shown a lot of willpower standing up to the kind of elites that are trying to get him to escalate even further. So I totally agree with you that we have not been pushing negotiations enough. President Zelensky last week already said that he would be willing to give up um, his request to join NATO, which was essentially Putin's number one reason for entering this war, this horrible war, inexcusable, but that was the reason for it. And that was something that he has stated very explicitly is the main thing that would make him stop the war. So I don't think we have been doing enough to convince the two sides to come together, especially given how little distance there is now between them and how well the negotiations are going at this late stage. At the same time, there's so much pressure from American elites on both sides of the political aisle to escalate, escalate, escalate. And I have been actually very impressed with how Biden has resisted that. Um, so I think that that, that um, I see why you would make that argument. Um, but I I don't see it that way. What I do think is happening is it's become very, very clear that um, the environmental causes at stake here are in deep tension with the working class. Now, that doesn't mean that environmentalism isn't important. It doesn't mean that climate change isn't happening and isn't something that we have to really do our best to take care of and to and to mitigate. But the, the Green New Deal, a lot of the stuff bound up in the environmental lobby is coming at the expense of the working class, both in terms of jobs and in terms of energy 
prices and in terms of just that you look at a place like California that has so much of that, so much in terms of environmentalism and also is the most economically unequal state in, in the union. Um, and I think that that's what's coming out here is that tension and that, you know, the left needs a new playbook because we have to admit that that tension is there and find a way to deal with both sides of that. And so, so Baya, I actually, I, you know, I've written about this a bunch too. I agree with you in, in, a, in a significant portion of your analysis that the upper middle class being so dominant within the Democratic Party now is creating a real tension between that element of the party and its traditional working class roots. And so you do end up getting these cultural values, you know, masquerading as uh, what you're talking about. But I also think that you get on the right, and we shouldn't let them off the hook either, that the, the right kind of is engaging in class warfare and, and masquerading it as, as support and love for the working class. And I think the gas prices situation is, is a perfect example. You know, they have spent, you know, 30, 40 years, you know, vociferously fighting any shift away from fossil fuels. And so foisting onto the working class this system that in order for you to get to your job, in order for you to get to church, to get to softball, to get to soccer, you've got to basically light on fire something that we're, that we're pulling out of the ground. And, and they have fought tooth and nail to move away from that with people saying, look, look, this is forget, forget climate change and even forget national security. This is in, incredibly unstable. You're going to see wild fluctuations. We saw gas hitting $4 a gallon in 2008. And the, and the response from the right was drill, baby, drill. So at some point, they're putting the working class at the mercy of OPEC and at the, at the uh, global energy markets, fighting against moving to a more sustainable and more stable system, and then saying that it's actually, they're doing it for their own benefit. So isn't there some class warfare going on on the right, too, that it's masquerading as working class values? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, like, you know, nobody's saying nobody, the, the working class has been abandoned by both sides for, yeah. for many, many decades now. Um, and I, I'm not, I don't want to claim that, you know, the right is, you know, I, I think that you are seeing right now their side and their position is more consistent with what I would consider to be a pro working class agenda. But I don't know that that's, you know, inherently, you know, because of anything that they've done historically, it's just right now, they are speaking up on behalf of the things that seem to me like um, would be in in, 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 in the interest of the working class. But of course, you know, historically, certainly the right has been the side of the rich. Um, and whether or not we're really seeing a shift there, I don't know. I mean, certainly there are some people who seem to be trying to make good on these on, the, on this sort of rhetoric. But, uh, you know, whether that's going to be um, something that sticks, uh, you know, time will tell. Well, Trump weighed in on the fiasco and blamed progressives for Biden's unwillingness to increase oil production in the U.S., we have the best oil in the world. It's sitting right. I call it liquid gold. And we don't want to take it from us. You know, it's a big advantage we have over China. We have oil. They don't. We have natural gas. They don't. We have coal. They don't. The entire world is laughing at the United States. This is to be the most pathetic spectacle that anyone's seen. Nobody's ever seen anything like that. And Elon Musk, who's a guy that I like and respect, friend of mine, he runs an electric car company, is calling for Biden to increase oil and gas production. But Biden won't do it because he does not have the will to stand up to AOC. You know AOC? We call AOC. I don't think she... Yeah. We he call just has AOC. such a way about him. We call her AOC. <laughs> he came up with that. 
<laughs> we'd, nice if we lived in a world where Biden was afraid to stand up to AOC. But by, this is also what I'm talking about when it comes to this, this fundamental lack of respect for working people. Like the idea that we're, we're at like max production. Like they're, we're producing as much domestic energy now as we have been you know, for, for years. And the idea that laying down the Keystone Pipeline and green lighting that and then exporting that is going to do something about gas prices is, is just a lie. Gas prices are significantly tr controlled by OPEC. And then when you have an energy shock like uh, you know, a, a Russia invades Ukraine, that's an additional shock. So you know, at, at what point is the working class going to say, you know what, we don't want to be lied to by either side here? I mean, I, I do have to say, I think that Trump um, is right in this case. Uh, when you just look at when the prices started to really rise with gas, it certainly was, you know, around the time of the election, when it was clear to, you know, big oil that there was a new sheriff in town. I don't know that if like necessarily well, no, if oh, they were still producing. So OPEC, yeah, o OPEC plus, which includes Russia, came to a new agreement that that reduced production. Uh, Trump had so Trump. Trump does deserve credit in this sense. You know, he pushed, uh, he pushed to get more production, to get prices down, and OPEC complied. And, mm -hmm. But OPEC complied because OPEC is run by Saudi Arabia, and Trump was, was doing all sorts of deals with Saudi Arabia, some you know, above the table, some under the table, and also was overlooking the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and had a very good relationship with Saudi Arabia. And so Saudi Arabia was, whenever Trump asked to do something on production, whether it was reduce it, during COVID, increase it uh, around the election. Uh, he was willing to, to, MBS was willing to do that. So it, it is true that there's some connection between Biden being in the right, White so, House and Ryan, gas prices, is, is, is but, that's, that but again, that's because of OPEC. Right, but again, isn't that again the same, we're back to the same thing. Like, sure, Jamal Khashoggi's murder was horrific, right? And yes, like there's, you can imagine a world where like Biden, like uh, Putin's horrific invasion of Ukraine, we say, look, we can't stand for this and we're willing to put, you know, our, our dollars, you know, into that and say, look, we're not gonna negotiate with people who do things like that. But again, that is selling out the working class at the gas pump in order to have some sort of moral high ground and Trump didn't feel that that was worth it and i don't i think he's right like at some point isn't that again going to be you know how much are we willing to sell out the working class to feel good about ourselves about countries that we can't change well, a for, place I like mean, saudi arabia we for 80 percent of the public which is practically unanimous you know you can't get 80 percent of people saying they like puppies in polls 80 percent of the public is saying that they actually agree with the idea that we should stop taking Russian oil as a way to punish Russia and that they'd be willing to pay you know, more well, well, so that no, includes so there, massive... There, there's two polls. There's yeah. two polls, right? One said 80%, yes, they'd be... Right. We, we and then, and then three, and five, three and five say they would pay more, right? Three and five said that right. they would pay more, yes. Let's, we're going to check in on them again in three weeks, in four right. weeks, right. when it goes up to seven, eight dollars, right? right? Um, you know, I, I think you're raising really important points, Ryan. I, I do. But at the end of the day, when I think about where are America's best interests and where are the interests of the Ukrainian people, it's in a de-escalation, you know? Yeah. It's in a recognition of, you know, maybe our interests and even Zelensky's interests don't align with the really important, beautiful rhetoric that's coming out of his office and that what we should be doing is really encouraging, you know, an end to this, both on behalf of Ukraine's civilians and on behalf of our own working class. Mm -hmm. my, my sense is that most people are willing to suffer some in the short term in the hopes that it will bring a quick end to this conflict, which is different from a sort of permanent 
not taking Russian oil to make a moral statement, you know, driving up prices forever. I, I think that is, is not willing. I think people are willing for to try it out for a short term because we're just trying to apply the pressure right now to end this, not as like a long-term regime, regime change or, or moral uh, stance. But and, yeah. and, ju- and just to be clear about the, the Trump relationship with the Middle East, so J- Jared Kushner went to the country of Qatar and shook them down. Uh, his, his, his real estate company shook them down for a massive bailout of his own private real estate debacle that he had gotten himself into. Qatar turned, him down, turned that company down, said, no, we're not giving you any money. Saudi Arabia and the UAE then blockaded Qatar, which has a base of 10,000 troops, American troops in Qatar. They were close to launching an invasion of Qatar with, with our American troops in, in, in the country. Kushner intervened, basically got Rex Tillerson fired because Rex Tillerson was like, wait a minute, we don't want to blockade these countries. What, what's, what's going on? Why are we getting involved in this private kind of real estate deal that's going on here? Uh, and so Kush, but Kushner ended up siding with MBS and siding with the UAE in this dispute with Qatar, which may have also been related to his own personal real estate dealings. And so this is, this is all kind of corporate corruption, it's all personal corruption. It involves the, the, the surveillance technology that's moving in and out of Israel to Saudi Arabia, to the UAE, and around the world. And Kushner and Trump were willing to say, that's all fine. We're, we're cool with doing this. And in exchange, uh, you know, Kushner has since gotten tons of money from Saudi Arabia for his own private equity fund. And at, also, as a result, MBS was kind of willing to do whatever Trump asked on gas prices. You can say that that's good for the working class because it did push down gas prices, but it doesn't sound like a sustainable foreign policy or anything that kind of we'd want to endorse long term. No, but that's almost making the argument for local drilling in our own country, becoming but we're already drilling everywhere, but even like, more so, you know, becoming more independent and saying we're not going to buy. It's, it's Wall Street that doesn't. That, and that, this is the other key point. It's Wall Street that doesn't want to fund the drilling in the United States. There are tons of leases that are just sitting there because they're just they're just not profitable for a lot of complicated reasons. Well, um, we, yeah, we've got to go. <laughs> but Batya, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on. Uh, very informative. So thank you. And, and yeah, great job on Bill Maher's show. That was really nice yes. watching you there. Really cool. Thanks, All right. Uh, we do have an update on WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. That is coming up next. The UK High Court has denied Julian Assange's push to appeal his extradition. A court spokesperson said the WikiLeaks founder's case did not raise, quote, an arguable point of law, unquote. Assange faces up to 175 years in U.S. prison for his publication of classified documents relating to U.S. and U.K. military action in Afghanistan and Iraq. The BBC reports that UK Home Secretary Priti Patel is expected to approve the extradition. At that point, Assange's lawyers could appeal a prior court decision, which, if successful, could keep him in the UK. So this is going to drag on a little bit longer. We're not quite towards the end, apparently, on this. You know, it's because that was the question I had for Ryan earlier was, so does this mean he's being extradited? And there's going to be another appeal. But likely, it, they're likely. It looks, yeah. yeah, it looks like he's going to be extradited eventually. But no, sir, right, it does seem like the writing is on the wall, and yeah. so the question is when, rather than if, at this point. It's delay at this point. Right, and delay. And there's a there's a purpose now. They they announced uh, that on March 23rd he'll be getting married in Belmarsh Prison. Wow, are they going to um, actually have a ceremony in mm-hmm. the prison? They're allowed four guests. Uh, 
four total guests at the at the prison. Mm -hmm. They're going to have a ceremony there March 23rd. So your birthday. That's my that's my birthday. I'll, uh, so, but you're right. It does it does look like uh, he's going to fail in in fighting the extradition request. The the, init the initial denial from the judge came on the grounds that the the U.S. system could not promise that they wouldn't torture him, basically, by putting him in solitary confinement and couldn't guarantee his, his safety. safety. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and so then after the ruling, the U.S. said, okay, well, we make these, we make a few assurances. We won't put him in solitary confinement unless we decide that we need to. That was a, and it was reported in the U.S. media that they promised not to put him in solitary. That was actually not true. They said they would not do it unless they decided they needed to do it. And they always put people in solitary confinement because they've decided they need to do it. Right. Well, there's no there's no court that adjudicates whether whether that decision. I mean, ultimately, there, right. there is if you have some kind of like lawsuit. But in the in the moment, there's no other per third person that goes like, oh yeah, this is in the person's right. best interest. You get to do that. No, they just do it if they think right. they should. And which they is right. at the beat at the. It could be because you did something wrong, or it could be because somebody else did something right. wrong, and they say and they were fear nearby. For you. Right. And they also promised they wouldn't, wouldn't put him in this particularly draconian maximum security prison unless they decided that they needed to. I wonder so how, that was enough yeah. for the U.K. to say, okay, fine, good. Well, and I wonder, I wonder how long this can drag out, you know, how in death row cases, for example, mm -hmm. people can appeal and then appeal and then appeal. And, of course, you know, that is a bit different. Well, it's not really that different. A person's life is on the line. And I would think we could argue that maybe Julian Assange is, is uh, in this case. But... Um, we know that they can appeal over and over and over again. So if he appeals again and loses that appeal, is it just, nope, you're on a plane and you're going? Or is there another step and another appeal? And he could be just in this process forever and ever. It looks like he's getting close to the end, I think. And there are some defenders who think that, and Assange clearly doesn't want to be extradited, um, but there, there are some of his defenders who think that the, the U.S. media has so completely failed to raise this as as an issue of press freedom, partly perhaps because he's not here in the United States, that if he were in federal district of Virginia and in prison there, that at least there would be more attention to it and it would, and it would then force the Biden Department of Justice to, to answer the question of why they are continuing to pursue this. That's, I, that might be wishful thinking and the answer that Biden might come up with is because screw you, right. uh, we're gonna lock him up. Right. Uh, but there's a chance that it raises pressure, raises pressure on. Right. Uh, and now, that's a pardon or a commutation is the easy, immediate way out of this. If or we're just dropping the, the charges. Right. Just, just dropping saying, you know, charges. we're not we're not prosecuting journalists for publishing classified information. We never have, and we and we never will. There uh, are they are the, going. Yeah. They're not going to drop the charges because they they do not want to establish that right. They, no, if you leak information, you will be prosecuted. Maybe, I don't know, in the, Chelsea Manning got a, got a commutation or a pardon? It probably would be a commutation is what they yeah, would probably pardon, do if they do it. Yeah. But that, you know, it, so it might be in Julian's best interest, actually, to extradite now and face this trial under the Biden administration, where it would be a very bad look for the Biden administration to, I, I'm sure he'll be charged, you know, well, he is charged, but I'm sure he'll be convicted. Right. And you then, can't win these cases. Right. And then be yeah. thrown in jail. And then it would be for Biden, especially if he loses this upcoming election, which I think many of us think there's a big chance he's not going to be president again uh, for a second term, that at the end, when he's doing all of his 
you know, all of the signing, all the papers and That's saying, true. then he That's would true. say, okay, let's just go ahead and commute this sentence because a Republican president is not as likely to do that. Maybe so, Trump, though. Trump. Because of the weird, if Trump had how done, this all yeah. shook out, where right. now Assange, from because of his anti-Hillary Clinton stuff and the Russian, you know, whatever, is perceived as being somehow part of the same Trump kind of... It, it's not unthinkable that, right. that Trump would... But then it, you're risking it if you're Julian Assange. Certainly. I wouldn't right. want to risk it on I Trump wa- right. realizing and, that, I mean... And not only that, but you the have last to, thing he, you'd have to risk that he even runs again. That's unclear, right? Absolutely. He might just be doing everything right. he's doing right now just for the fame and the attention, which we right. know he loves. Um, he might so, lose. Right, he might lose. So you're really betting a lot. If yeah. I were Julian Assange and his team, I would say, I'd rather take my chances under a Biden administration. I'm going to be extradited to the United States. There's, It's inevitable. I'm going to be convicted. It's inevitable. But that my is best interesting. chance yeah. at, at getting out of prison early is the Biden administration. That is interesting, actually, because if they delay it, they would want to delay it as a general principle, obviously, but if they delay it past Biden being in office, that could ultimately be worse. It depends. Yeah, because Trump's, you know, the reporting was that Trump was very close, and Trump has said publicly that he was right. very close to Right. Par- he just pardoning. loves that. He loves the drama. But it was genuine. He loves like, the TV. After, oh, I might right. do it. I could do it. Oh, who knows what right. I will do. After, and then loves there's it. that. Right. After January 6th, he went weak at the knees. One of the most cowardly things he's, he's done is he felt like Ooh, I pushed this too far. I am now in serious jeopardy. Yeah. And if and Trump is absolutely not going to do anything for anybody else that puts him even right, a no. millimeter more no. at risk of anything. That's just not who that's just not who Trump is. And so he was like, I don't care. You can rot. Now Assange's big problem for among liberals is has always been right. this link, this RussiaGate link. And that, that's, the, they blame him for Hillary Clinton losing yeah, the election. That's, that's a problem he has with the mainstream media. So yeah. I brought this up several times, but the only reporting I could find uh, about the most recent uh, Assange developments going back a couple weeks ago, right, it was some MSNBC post being like, oh, well, if Assange is back in the right. U.S., we, we'll, we'll get to reopen the Mueller investigation. Right. We'll find out more of that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of screwed either way because you bring up a really good point. Yeah. I mean, because liberals have latched on to this Russia yeah. gate. And Russia now collusion. there's a war. Yeah. Right. And like so they, they were livid at Russia before Russia invaded Ukraine. So, right. Yeah. Now I'm livid at Russia, too. Right. Right. I mean, so this is it's a <laughs> yes. losing situation for Julian Assange. What's really a crime in all of this is the media not speaking up mm-hmm. against this. Like there's Journalists. probably classified information in today's New York Times and Washington Post. And if they think that the government is going to set a precedent with Julian Assange and just leave it there, and never come after anybody else for that, they're fooling themselves and marching right. themselves into prison. What do you think the hosts of The View think should happen to Assange? <laughs> like, like, torn apart by rabid dogs or something? Uh, if, uh, just, if, if Tulsi should be investigated by the DOJ? Yeah. yeah, they would be, of course, saying he's a traitor, even yeah. though he's not even American, right. but he's still a traitor, and yeah. he should... We're uh, traitors to them. I don't know what... <laughs> right. Assange, who, who I d- did share classified, you know... <laughs> gone further down that uh, that the definition of what yeah. counts is they think he lost the that he was the reason for Hillary Clinton oh, losing yeah so yeah they definitely are yes and he said that drawn and quarter the guy is yeah. what they'll be advocating for and he there, he wouldn't necessarily even let's let's say that it was Russia that hacked Podesta and gave Hillary's emails to Assange let's say that's true there's no reason that Assange would even know that like you get a you get an anonymous document dump, just like the Panama Papers, just like the Pandora Papers. 
just like all of these other leaks, you, you get the leak, you verify whether it's authentic, and then you publish it. That's, mm -hmm. what a, that's what a journalist does. Right. But they're like, no, he collaborated with Russia to put Hillary Clinton in, uh, into So the then they say, lock him up, lock him up, right? They yeah. turned it around. Yeah, and he's locked up. Ugh. Well, we will continue to cover this case. Yeah. Hopefully someone else in the media will do the same. Tomorrow on Rising, writer Maxim Lott will join us to explain his take on where the Russia-Ukraine war is headed. And reporter Eli Yokely will be here to break down public opinion on Joe Rogan, who we haven't mentioned in Oh, Rogan, 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 Rogan. All right, well, you know what to do. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so that you never miss a video. And if you are more into podcasts, we're now available wherever you listen to them. So be sure to check us out because... How cool are we? You can't not check us out when we look yeah. that cool, right? At least, yeah, <laughs> download it at least. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much for watching. See you. See you later. See you next time.